Let's give the Lord a hand this morning. Amen. Amen. If you have a little one that would like to go to Children's Church, Miss Kim is ready to serve us there. And while they're going, let me encourage you to take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. If you're looking in your pew Bible, you'll find it there uh, on uh, page 786, I believe, if you're using one of the pew Bibles. Uh, we're in the last chapter of the book of Habakkuk. We've been walking through this uh, short but important Old Testament minor prophet book of the Bible. Two of the most probably vexing questions that we have when it comes to our faith and interacting with the God who loves us is, why does evil seem to prosper? Why does good seem to do or, or, or seem to be hurt while evil prospers? That, that's kind of the big question that we have, Lord. Why does it look like the bad guys are winning? That's often a kind of a, a, a thought in our mind. What's going on when we see evil uh, seemingly going unpunished. And, and that kind of leads to that second question of, God, when are you going to do something? Right? So, so we have these two questions in front of us. God, why does it seem like those that are unrighteous are prospering, while those that are God-fearing, those that are trying to do right, that are walking in your way, seem to be struggling? And God, why aren't you doing anything about it. Those are kind of the, the big questions that we have to ask in our faith. And in fact, those are the two big questions that Habakkuk in three small chapters tackles. He jumps straight in to some of the deepest water of understanding God and his sovereignty that you'll find in all of scripture. He is dealing with the, the big topic of where is God in the midst of chaos and calamity? Where is God when things are not going like they're supposed to be? Where is God when, the, when evil seems to be winning and the righteous seem to be suffering or losing? Where is God? And so over the three chapters of Habakkuk, Habakkuk, unlike other prophets in the Bible, instead of speaking to the people for God, he speaks to God for the people. So he goes up and he says, Lord, in fact, you'll find it there in chapter one, starting along about verse one. He says, oh, Lord, how long will the wicked prosper? How long will evil have its day? How long are you going to let all this bad stuff go on? How long will you fix this? The contemporary Christian group Casting Crowns has a song. And in the first verse says, I would have thought by now you would have stepped in. I would have thought by now you would have wiped away the tears. I would have thought by now you would have stopped the storm that is around me. God, where are you? And so over chapter 1 and chapter 2, this is the dialogue that Habakkuk is having with God. And brothers and sisters, we can put ourselves in his shoes. God, this situation, this problem, this evil, this event, it just doesn't seem fair. Where are you? When are you going to do something about this? And so he has this deep dialogue with God. Let me just get you up to speed a little bit. Maybe you've not been with us on what's happening in the, in the setting of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a prophet. The nation of Israel has been split into two kingdoms now. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom will hang on as long as possible. The northern kingdom will fall first. But in the southern kingdom, you have Judah. It's Judah's God's people. The tribes of God have split in half. And, and Habakkuk is a prophet to the Judah region, the southern kingdom. And one of the kings now sitting on the throne of Israel, one of God's kings in his lineage of Jewish kings is Joachim, and he is one of the most wicked men in all of history. 
In fact, the Bible would tell us throughout the Old Testament that he was just running away from God in every possible way. And so the very people that are supposed to be God's people following God's plan are being led by a man who's evil and wicked and pulling them further away from God. And so those who are in Judah, those who are trying to live for God, are being persecuted because the very king that's over them is evil. And so Habakkuk's had enough. He says, God... you." You see this, don't you? You you see this kingdom, these people that you love. You see your your family being hurt. You see this wicked king on the throne. God, why don't you do something? And then he gets down to chapter 2, verse 4. You can look at it there in your Bible. You'll see it. It says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And so Habakkuk questions God about this, but he ends his questioning by saying, I'm going to have to trust you. I'm going to just have to trust you. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But I'm going to have to trust you. And then God answers him. In chapter 2, long about verse 6, God answers him. And you know what God says? God says, Habakkuk, I've been seeing this. I got my eye on it. I'm not happy about it. I do not like what's going on in Judah. In fact, I am working to fix this problem. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. You see that nation over there next to you called the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. You see that Nebuchadnezzar? I'm fixing to strengthen his army. I'm fixing to raise him up. He's going to come conquering up through the north and come all the way down through the bottom. And Judah is about to be enslaved and crushed and broken to this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know about you, but that's not how I saw that going. I saw Habakkuk, the prophet of God, going up on a mountain and saying, God, please help us. And then I see God saying, Habakkuk, I see your prayer. I love my people. I'm going to take out that evil king. I'm going to put a good king on the throne. And Judah is going to thrive in the kingdom. God says, no, 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 no. They've been wicked. They've been sinful. And I'm about to judge them. And so he brings Nebuchadnezzar in and he crushes them. And so again, you might think to yourself, well, Habakkuk's now got real problems. Because his first question is, when are you going to fix Judah? And now his question's got to be, Lord, how in the world is Babylon a part of this? They don't even worship you. They worship their own power and their own might. God, how are you going to use this nation that's even worse than Judah to judge Judah? That doesn't seem to comprehend. That's not copacetic, if you will, with what I know about you, God. And so what does God do? If you'll read chapter 2, God says, don't worry. Nebuchadnezzar will have his day. Evil will be judged. In fact, in chapter 2, he describes how the Babylonians will be crushed and how evil will have its day and judgment will come. And so he lets him peek into the future and he says, that's not the end of the story. Now I want to pause there for just a second and give you a spiritual tidbit. Whatever you're going through is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. God always has chapters for his children and brothers and sisters. The glorious truth of God's book that has been written in your life through Christ Jesus is I may not know what the next chapter is or the next chapter is, but I've read the end and God has a plan. He's working. He's moving. And so he says, I'm not going to let Babylon have the last say. And so here is where we are. Habakkuk has seen Judah's sin. He's asked God to help. God says, I'm going to crush them with an even more wicked nation, and then I'm going to crush that wicked nation. So you understand, in the next phase of Judah's history, it's about to get real bad. They're going to be crushed. They're going to be dispersed. This is where Nebuchadnezzar comes in and and takes people out of their country and spreads them out. And Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're all spread out. They're, They're separated. 
right? They're going to have all kind of famine and they're going to have their farmland burned and they're going to have their cities destroyed and they're going to be sent off into slavery. And then the Babylonians are going to fall to the Persians and there's going to be more chaos. And then eventually they'll start to trickle back a little bit at a time, but it'll never be what it once was when the kingdom was one nation under David or Solomon. It won't look like that anymore. And so you got to understand something. Habakkuk has communed with God, and he's come to figure out, I still don't quite understand. You you ever had an answer and then not really understand how you got the answer or where it went? I'm working on fourth grade math with my daughter. And and I can get her to the answer, and then she'll say, well, how do we do that? And I say, I'm not sure, but this is how I learned it, so this is what we're going to do, right? I, I don't quite fully grasp it, but I know where we're going. I want you to see Habakkuk chapter 3 because we come to the end of the story of Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk chapter 3, here's what we find. You look in your Bible there and you'll see it in verse 1. It says a prayer of Habakkuk. Here's what's happened. In Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk is done questioning the Lord. He's, he's, He's come to the conclusion, I've met with God, I've communed with God. I've heard, I've seen, I've I've watched the sovereign God tell me, and and he doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't fully understand. He never gets completely to the end of the story, but he he says, I I have a prayer now, which which ultimately means I've done all the dialoguing I'm going to do with God. I am settled steadfast, and he's in charge, and he knows what he's doing. I I don't have any more rebukes to bring to God. I am confident that he is doing what he will do. And here's what I'd like to do for just a moment. I want you to flip to the end. We're going to, get, we're going to kind of ruin the story. Look at verse 17. Let me read that. Let me, let me read it so you'll know where we're going to end up. Because it is, verse 17, 18, and 19 are probably some of the most beautiful scripture in all the Bible. Remember all that's coming, all the chaos that's about to happen, all the problems they're about to face, everything that Habakkuk has just heard, and listen to what he says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fall and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the field and there be no herd in the stalls. Verse 18, yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. Yet, I will rejoice. This morning, I want us to see how we get from God. This is chaos to yet I will rejoice. Would you pray with me? Father, help us now as we walk through this passage of Scripture. God, we need to know how the prophet did this. How did the prophet get from Lord how long and where are you and why aren't you working to hearing all of these plans you have that are that are just in our eyes, in our view, they're, they're not good, Father. They're going to bring harm. They're, gonna, they're not what we thought. It's, it's a struggle for us to see how conquering kings and war and famine are, are going to be used for good. And so, Lord, how did you say all of that to Habakkuk? And at the end, he still say, yet I will rejoice. God, we need to know the answer. Show us the answer from your word. How, how do we get that kind of faith? Lord, there are some in this room even now that are walking in the midst of chaos. 
They have health issues in front of them. They have, they have relational issues. They have financial issues. They have suffering and strife and struggle. And, and the world is beating them down. And, and they found themselves in those moments of how long, O oh Lord? Or maybe they're looking into the, the next part of their life and they realize it's just chaos coming from one end to the other. Lord, how do they get to the point where they say, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation? Lord, help us answer that question today. Lord, please show us what faith looks like in the midst of the chaos. Lord God, teach us from the prophet, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 and 2 kind of set aside. So before we dive into the, the, the points of the sermon, if you will, I just want to walk you through verse 1 and 2 because they are the introductory of this whole thing. And, and look again at verse 1 because I want you to see what happens here. See, Habakkuk has been talking with God. He's been communing with God. And now he turns all of that into a prayer and a praise. The f- verses 1 through uh, uh, 15 is a prayer. He's praying to the Lord. And then in verse 16, he kind of transitions. And then you heard me read 17 through 19 where it's just a song. It's a praise. But I, but I want you to see the purpose of him writing this, this poetry in the midst of this prophecy. Look at verse 1. A prayer Habakkuk, the prophet, according to a shigioneth. You see that fancy word there? Let me let you in on a secret. We don't really know what that word means, but we are almost certainly 100% maybe confident that it has something to do with a musical term. We'll find it in the book of Psalms in one or two places. And so here's what we think. Here's what scholars believe. And when I say scholars, you know that means people smarter than me, right? Here's what scholars believe. They believe that Habakkuk wrote this prayer and this praise. And then at some point in Israel's history, through all of this chaos, he gave it to the worship leader and he said, we need to sing this over and over and over and over and over. Now think about this, brothers and sisters. Just a few minutes ago, we stood and sang, it is well with my soul. How many times have we sung that weeping and crying? How many funerals have we gathered at and sung, it is well with my soul? How many times have we gathered in painful moments and said, though Satan may buffet, you know, that's a fancy word for he's killing me, right? Though Satan may be against me, I will say again, it is well with my soul. Listen to me now, don't miss this. I I know it's just the introduction to the sermon, but, but don't miss it. Brothers and sisters, one of the great gifts of God to the church is his word and the singing of his people, of his word, to strengthen our souls. Is it not the case that we can find ourselves limping in the faith and find that song That place where scripture has been put to tune and it lift us. And so Habakkuk says, we're we're heading into some real bad chaos. Nebuchadnezzar's coming. The nation's about to struggle. Pain is in front of us. I'm pastor, I'm heading into a painful place. Then listen to me now. You come over God's word and you sing his truths and it will strengthen your soul. And so Habakkuk says, we're going to need this song. We're going to need this in the days to come. When Nebuchadnezzar comes swinging his sword and snatches our children and carries them off to Babylon, we're going to need this song. And so he writes a song. He writes a prayer. He imagines the church telling himself, sing and sing and sing. And then verse 2, just one more thought of introduction. Look with me. He says, oh Lord, I have heard the report of you. He says, God, I've heard everything you've told me. I've heard it all, right? 
I'm, I'm nervous. I'm not sure. Look at the next part. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. I am very, very uncertain of all this you've told me. I am very trembling. I'm, I'm weak and feeble of what I've heard. Oh God, you're about to do this. I'm nervous. I'm, uh, Lord, I'm confessing to you. I'm, I'm scared of what's coming. But, but notice what he asked for. Here, here's a prayer for you when you face chaos. Here, just, just a simple prayer. Look at what he asked for. Look at verse 2. He says, in the midst of the years, during all this chaos, here's what I want you to do, Lord. Here's what I'm asking. Revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In the midst of the years, you might say, in wrath, remember mercy. He, he asks for two things. He says, one, revive it. What does he mean by that? He means simply this, Lord, sustain us, revive us, hold us. Keep your work going. Don't stop with your children. Give us life in the midst of this. May we see the rose in the midst of the thorns. And then he says in there, give us wisdom. That's what the next phrase says, right? Make it known to us. Now, brothers and sisters, when you're walking into chaos, when you find yourselves in calamity, when you're not certain of what is coming or how it's going to play out or what you're facing, then, then let me just give you a simple prayer here from verse 2. Lord, in the midst of the hard, dark, depressed, long days, give me life. Breathe your life on me. Revive me. Remind me that you're working. And number two, Lord, give me wisdom because my mind and my heart is going to rebel against everything I'm about to face. So give me wisdom. R remind me how you're working. Remind me what you're doing. Remind me again from your word how this is your plan and your purpose and how nothing escapes your sight. Give me wisdom. But then that last part, oh, that last part's good, brothers and sisters. Look at the end of verse 2. In wrath... Remember mercy. Oh God, don't give me everything I deserve, please. You understand the difference between grace and mercy? Let me help you by explaining this to you. Grace is getting what we do not deserve, and mercy is God stopping what we do deserve. And so the idea here of mercy is, God, I, I know I deserve your judgment and your chaos. I know I deserve your wrath for my sin. I know I deserve all the things that are in front of me. But in the midst of all of this, give me relief. Put the cool water on the tongue, Father. Help my scorched lips. Don't, don't let me feel the weight of all of this on my arm. And just think about in our own lives how the Lord gives us mercy. There are tangible ways. He gives us mercy, we've already said, through his word and through song. He gives us mercy through his people, through the church, through the gathering of believers. He gives us mercy in sustaining our life. He gives us mercy in rest. This is the God who we should experience his full wrath, but in the midst of chaos, there is always silver linings because of the Lord. Now, that's just the introduction. we got a long ways to go, don't we? L let me give you three truths this morning how you can trust God in the midst of chaos. Truth number one, you can trust God in the midst of chaos because he has delivered his people in the past. He has done it before. He is a God who rescues. He has, he has delivered people in the past. And so what, here's what the prophet does. He's writing this prayer in this song because they're about to face certain uh, uncertainty. And he says, let me just take you on a history lesson. Let me remind you that God has delivered us before. Let me remind you that God has rescued us before. And anchored in the Old Testament, and anchored in the faith of the Jewish people, and anchored, brothers and sisters, quite frankly, in our faith, is the climax story of the Exodus. When God delivered the children of Israel out of, out of Egypt by Moses' staff and Aaron's hands, when God delivered the children of Israel, this became an anchor point to the nation of Israel all throughout its history. It is an anchor point of our faith. 
And so here's literally what he does. In verses three through eight, he reminds them how God delivered them during the Exodus. Let me show you what I mean. Look with me at verse three. Remember, he's speaking kind of past tense here. God came. God came from Teman and the holy mountain, Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Now, I want you to notice this because it's pretty neat. He's, he's telling us about boundaries of Judah and Israel. And when God came to rescue the people, he came up through Teman. This is the traveling route. This is part of how they traveled. And so I want you to notice this because I, I think it's good for us. When God showed up to rescue the children of Egypt, he showed up in real locations at real times to rescue his real people. You see, brothers and sisters, we serve a God who shows up. We serve a God who's not standing back and looking over. He's not wound the clock of earth and disappeared, but he shows up. He's in places. He showed up. He came. He delivered. During the time of the Exodus, he showed up at Mount Teman. He showed up at Mount, or excuse me, the Valley of Teman at Mount Paran, and he delivers his people in real ways, in real places. He is telling the prophet, I've done this before. So Habakkuk is looking at a nation that's about to go into chaos, and he says, remember when they were lost in Egypt and God showed up. And they said, oh, that's a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. Let me show you on the map where he came from. Let me show you on the places on your GPS where he traveled. Let me show you where he led you. Let me, let me show you where God showed up. Brothers and sisters, we can look through all Scripture and find places where God showed up. Was it not Jericho where God showed up? Was it not on Mount Sinai where God shook the earth and he showed up? Was it not in the battlefield of David and Goliath where God showed up? Was it not on the water as Peter was walking when God showed up? Was it not in Bethlehem when God himself entered this world? Was it not at Calvary where God fought for our victory? What is it not at the garden tomb where God rose out? Is it not the sky that lifted him up into heaven in which he will return in? Our God shows up. He shows up. And he's reminding them, don't forget your history. God has showed up for his people before. He has been with us before. Look with me at verse 4. He continues this idea. He said, remember when he showed up, his bright light, his rays flashed from his hand, and there was veiled in his power. He's speaking about the fiery cloud that led the children of Israel or the lightning on top of Mount Sinai. When God showed up, his light pulled through. It showed, it shone like darkness. It was penetrated. He came like the sun that we stare into, too hard for us to see. He reminds them in verse 5, look with me, before him went pestilence and plague, followed his heels. Remember, he says, when he showed up, you remember that he left Egypt like scorched earth? You remember when God showed up the last time to rescue his people? There was plague and pestilence. Pestilence means burned down to the ground. There was nothing left when God showed up. When God rescues his people, you will see the trail of his victory left behind him. He shows up. He comes. He rescues. Look at verse 7 and 8. I saw the tents of Cush and affliction and the curtains in the land of Midian. These are the victories they had along the way. Verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode in on your horses or on your chariots, he's remembered of the, the story of the crashing waves. And he says, why were you so mad at the ocean that you split it open? And he says, it wasn't that I split the ocean open. It's that I was rescuing you from Egypt. And notice with me the end of verse 8, because I want you to see this. Don't miss it. When God showed up to save his people, he showed up for salvation. Look at what he says. On your chariot of salvation. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me and I want you to be encouraged. All through the past when God has showed up for his people, he showed up to save them. He showed up to rescue them. That doesn't mean there's not judgment, there's not crushing, there's not slavery. The nation of Egypt, 
The nation of Israel was in slavery because of their wicked ways. Judah was going to be crushed by the Babylonians because of their wicked ways. There's there's no doubt that God shows up to chastise and discipline his people. But when God does that, he's always promised to show up to save them. He saves his people. So let's pull this out of 3,000-year-old history and put it into our own lives. Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons why you can trust God in whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, whatever will be next, is because what God has done for you in the pass. There's an old song we sing some from time to time. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. The idea is is that I'm not sure about the chaos of tomorrow, but I can show you where God has saved me all through my life. And you know something that's even more special? Let me just remind you of something. Oftentimes when we read the Bible, we think about those people back then, and it doesn't apply to us. But you understand something. When you come to Christ Jesus, you are grafted into the family. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that when you are saved through Christ, you are a child now of Abraham's lineage, that you are part of the family of God. So you know what that means? When I face chaos, I can say, God rescued my family from Egypt. God rescued my family from Goliath. God rescued my family at Jericho. God rescued my family when the stormy sea was tossing him. Those were my people. And God showed up, so I trust him to show up in my generation because he showed up in every generation before me. That's the truth of being in God's family. Number two, you can trust God because of the future. He tells us here we can trust God in the chaos because he's delivered us in the past, but then he will transition his grammar He will change his tone. He will move the prayer and say, Israel, we're about to go through a hard time and we can trust God. He will deliver us because he will deliver us in the future. There's a future victory coming. Look with me at verse nine. You'll notice what happens in verses three through eight. He's speaking of he. He came, he did, he did this. And now he transitions to you come, you come, you come. And what he's doing is he's speaking in a term. He's speaking in what uh, theologians or, or doctrinal folks would say. Uh, he's speaking in this idea of the prophetic perfect tense. You got that? Prophetic perfect tense. That is to say, he's writing about something in the future in a past tense form, which means the prophet is so sure it will happen, he's already writing as if it has happened. Now, that's pretty neat. When we can talk about God in the past tense form of a future event because we are certain he will do what he said he will do. We can guarantee it, as they say. And so he puts down here and says, you came. He's speaking now of God rescuing us. He's speaking about the future. He's prophesying. He's prophesying first for, for Judah that they will eventually be rescued, that, that God will stir the King Cyrus and that, that the nation of Israel will start to come back. Israel will start to come back. Nehemiah will start to come back. They'll, they'll work on it. They'll, they'll make the, the kingdom back. But he's also looking to the future of, 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 the, of the glorious King of God when he returns, when Christ returns. And so he's, he's given us two views of prophecy here. But, but notice what happens. He says, you can trust God because he's going to come. You can trust God because he's going to deliver us. And I I just want you to see it. Look at verse 9. You stripped your seeds from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and withered. The raging waters swept on the deep, gave forth its voice. It lifted up its hand on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At light of the arrows they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. Verse 12. You marched through the earth with fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying them bare uh, thigh to neck. You pierced them, verse 14, with his own arrows and his 
his head of his warrior who came like a whirlwind and scattered them, rejoicing as it devoured the poor and seeker. Verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of the mighty waters. Did you catch all the yous in that passage? There's about seven or eight yous there. You did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. Let's just sit in that for just a moment. Brothers and sisters, whatever you are facing, there is coming a day where God will return and he will fix it. And you know the, you know the good news about that? There ain't a single sentence in there where Corey's got to help. There ain't a single sentence in there where I'm banking on my dad fixing it or my mama rescuing me. There ain't a single sentence in there where I'm hoping Moses or David or, or Billy Graham will, will, will catch a hold of the plow of the Lord and, and help him till the field of judgment. There ain't a sentence in there about that. It is simply looking up to God and saying, you, my God, you will do this. Not because of my works or my righteousness or my good deeds, but because you will save your people. In fact, I want you to notice something. Look with me there uh, in verse uh, 13. You went out for the salvation of your people. Now he's talking about his warrior king, Jesus. He says he's going to pull his bow out. He's going to start to fling his arrows. He's going to glitter his shield. He's going to crash them with the earth. Even the mountains are going to shake. These, these mountains that we seem would never move are going to shake and fall like Sinai shook when God spoke to Moses that, that nothing is out of the hand of God's judgment, that he's coming and that he will crush his enemies. But I want you to notice verse 13 because God's not coming back to punish the wicked just to punish the wicked. God's coming back to punish the wicked in order to save his people. You know what that means? I don't have to get even. I don't have to be in charge. I, I can handle being mistreated. I can walk with dignity knowing that this life is unfair and, and I've been harmed and hurt and it doesn't seem right. Why? Because when my God comes, all of that wicked that's gone against me, he's going to fix it. He's going to break it. He's going to crush it. And not just because he's mean and not just because he's ugly or, or, or a tyrant. He's going to do it because he loves me. And he will lift me up out of this chaos. This is the beauty of God's salvation. He will crush the wicked because they deserve it, but he will crush the wicked because he is lifting us with his mercy out of judgment. This is what's beautiful. And, and just out of irony, look at verse uh, 14. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind and scattered me, rejoicing as to devour the poor in secret. Verse 15 is a verse of irony. He says, you're going to use the very arrows of the enemy to pierce their own heads. Now, now this is interesting because when you read the history of the Jewish people, you'll understand they were always the smaller, weaker, terrible army. When they were getting ready to leave Egypt, they had nothing. They left Egypt and what happens? Pharaoh gets mad and wants to get them back. And what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh gets on the best horses and the most expensive chariots the world had ever seen and chases them down and is about to run them over and it runs them right into their watery grave. God uses their very strength to destroy them. Jericho, this mighty city, this fortress, walls so high and so strong, no one will ever penetrate it. And those very walls fell on their Head. Goliath with his armor so heavy, it was his own sword that separated his head from his shoulders. Isn't it interesting that God takes whatever the strength of the wicked is and turns it on them? And so, brothers and sisters, when we look at the wicked and we think they are prospering, let us grieve in our heart and know that everything they are building up will be what falls on their head. Without Christ, it'll fall on their head. So when we find ourselves being envious, 
covetous of, of what the wicked seem to have, let us be reminded that when the wicked pile up things on this earth, it will be the judgment to them when the Lord returns. Let us pity them, not envy them, because God will use it. And now let us close with this last part. Probably, like I said earlier, some of the most beautiful scripture in all of the Bible. And that's simply this. He will deliver his people because he's done it in the past. And he will deliver his people in the future. And we can trust God in the chaos because he is delivering his people in the present. He's delivering his people now. God's with his people now. Look at verse 16. He kind of turns. He says, I hear and my body trembles. I've heard you, Lord. I've seen all of this. I remembered my history. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enter my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of my trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He's like Isaiah in the temple. Woe is me. He's like Peter on the boat when God uh, calmed the storm. I, I shouldn't be here. This is different. God, you are not like me. I'm trembling before you, but I trust you. In chapter 2, verse 4, if you were to look there, it says, The righteous shall live by his faith. Well, brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that verses 17, 18, and 19 is the definition of what that looks like. What does it mean to live by faith? Look, look with me and, and see what I mean. He understands what's coming. He says that, that, that here's what's coming. Uh, that they're going to come and destroy our land and they're going to crush us. In fact, verse 17 is absolutely uh, dismay. Look, look at it. Follow along. It says in verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vine. He gives us kind of six clauses here. If there's no fig tree blossoming, if we run out of figs, right? This is, a, this is an agricultural country and there's no, no, no fruit on the vines. We don't have figs. We don't have grapes. We don't have drink now. We don't have uh, antiseptic. We don't have medicine now, right? Now look what else he says. And the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. Now our crops are not coming in, and the flocks are cut off from the fold. Now we've lost our sheep. We don't have any meat. We don't have any sheep. We don't have any wool for comfort and clothing. We don't have any oil. Now look at verse 18, or excuse me, the end of verse 17. And there be no herd in the stalls. Now we don't even have cattle to pull the plow. You understand that if you take away one of those things, you might survive. Or you take away my grapes, I'll make it on water. I'll be fine. You take away my cow, but I can still work the hoe with my hands, right? You take away the sheep, that, that's okay. I can live off bread and, and, and I can live off grapes and figs. But, but if you take away all of these things, it's utter demise. It's, it's, it's utter chaos. It's utter, there will be physical and spiritual and emotional crushing when every one of these things are gone. But notice with me verse uh, 18 and 19. Here is the whole passage of Scripture in two verses. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Now it's interesting to me that Habakkuk has gone from the complaining prophet, O Lord, how long, to the rejoicing prophet. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And you want to know what else is interesting? Nothing's changed. Babylon's still coming. They're still going to be conquered. They're still going to get dispersed. They're still going to lose their crops and their fields and their cows and their, their olive. They're, they're about to have pestilence and plagues run through their country. Nothing in the situation has changed. And yet Habakkuk goes from how long, O Lord, to I will rejoice in you. So what's changed? Brothers and sisters, it is not the circumstances that's changed. It's Habakkuk's view of the God in the circumstances. You see, listen to me now. Don't miss this. I, I believe that God is not always interested in changing your circumstances. I believe he's certainly interested in changing your view of him in the midst of your circumstances. 
I believe he's trying to grow you and shape you and build you. And that includes the circumstances that you walk through. That he's trying to do something in your life. He's trying to draw you into him. And so the prophet now has heard and seen God. He's communed with God. And he's settled in the fact that there is a mess coming. But I've seen God. So bring it on. Whatever I face, it is well with my soul. God is with me. He's saving me now. Doesn't mean he's plucking me out of the circumstances, but it means he's holding my hand in the midst of them. And that is our saving God. That he walks with us. That he cares for us like Job in Job 42, where he says, I had heard of you, but now I've seen you. Habakkuk says, I've come talking and now I've met you and I'm different. I'm communing. I've, I've changed. He's embracing all of this calamity. And I want you to notice the verse in 18 because, because here's a convicting verse for you and for me. You know, Pastor, it's one thing for me to face something. I, I've got this health issue. I've got this uncertainty with a child. I've got this, this issue at work. I've got this, this struggle. I, I'm really in the midst of chaos, and, and it's well with my soul, but I'm gritting my teeth, and I'm bearing it. Brothers and sisters, that's not what it says. In verse 18, it says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't say, yet I'll tough it out. It doesn't say, yet I'll hang in there. It says, I'm so confident that God's going to bring me through this, that whatever I face, I'm prone to break out into song. I'm prone to worship the Lord. That however bad this may seem, God is so much better that even in the midst of the chaos, we're about to have a worship service. Yet I will praise Him. And why would we praise Him? Look at the rest of the verse. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. In the midst of this chaos, God's going to strengthen my feet. He's going to hold me up. I'm so thankful that it doesn't say, in the midst of this chaos, I'm going to do my best to hold on. No, it says, in the midst of this chaos, God's going to hold on to me. God's going to grab me. God's going to strengthen me. God's going to carry me through it. And brothers and sisters, there are days in our life where we can barely grunt and God is carrying us. He's he's holding us. He's rescuing us. He's delivering us. This is what God is doing. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12 through 13 writes these words. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Whether I'm in the valley or the mountain, whether it's chaos or serenity, here's the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Isn't it good that the Apostle Paul didn't say, I can do all things because I'm tough as nails. I can do all things because I pick myself up by my bootstraps. That's not what he says. He says, I can do all things because my God's put my boots on me because my God's holding me, because my God is strengthening me. I may be weeping, there may be sorrow, but my God is my salvation. And my God is holding me on. I like the way the Lamentations writes it in Lamentations chapter 3. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. How long, O Lord, 
the righteous shall live by faith, I'm going to praise you. That's the story of Habakkuk. God, I'm not sure what I'm facing. I don't know what's about to happen. But I know you are with me. And you will rescue me. And God is working. I see in the story of Habakkuk, the gospel. I see the story of Jesus. I see the great plan of God. We, like Judah, are in our sin running from God. We need God to rescue us. We need God to save us. We are wicked in all of our ways. And what does God do? God crushes us. God brings us to repentance. God tells us we're captive now of, the, of Babylon, of Satan, of the, of the God of this world. We're, we're enslaved and we need rescuing. And what does he do? Just like he showed up at Mount uh, Paran and Teman, just like he showed up for the Babylonians and crushed them, just like he showed up for David, he showed up. He showed up in Bethlehem and he showed up at Calvary and he showed up at the garden tomb and he showed up on that resurrection Sunday morning and he showed up and he said, Rejoice in me, for I am your strength and your salvation. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you this morning. Live by faith. Trust the Lord. Let us rejoice in Him. Would you pray with me, Father? We thank You that the gospel reminds us that You're the God who shows up. You're the God who saves. You're the God who rescues. That Lord, e even now as we, as we read uh, the book of Habakkuk, we see calamity and chaos we see, Father, you're working, but it's, it's certainly not how we would have drawn it up. It's not how we would have uh, thought it should happen. And so, Lord, we, we find ourselves like Habakkuk, just asking questions. Lord, where are you? Why does this happen? Why does, why does evil seem to prosper while the righteous seem to suffer? Why, why are we afflicted? Why are we crushed? Why does it seem like, like, like chaos all around us? God, why does it seem like you're not doing anything? Those are real um, pinnacle questions of our faith that we ask. And yet, God, we are reminded through the prophet Habakkuk and through your words to him, you are working. You have worked. And you will work. You are not a God who has left us. But you are a God who saves us and sustains us, and holds us. And so we look to our past and we say thank you for all the blessings and the rescuing from the past. We stand on the present knowing you are with us. You have not left us, you've not forsaken us, that you're our strength, that your mercy is new each morning. And God, we look to the certain future hope that you are coming and you will pull out your bow and you will crush the wicked and you will rescue your people. Brothers and sisters, your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Maybe some of you here are really hurting. You're in chaos. You find yourself just struggling, overwhelmed, tossed and turned. Maybe this morning you just need to be reminded, and, and let me say it to you again. God is with you. God is working. God's mercy is new each morning. Maybe you just need a brother or sister to put their arm around you and pray for you. Would you have the courage to do that today? Would you grab a brother or sister, come grab me and say, Pastor, I'm just struggling in chaos. Would you pray for me? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I, 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 my whole life is chaos and I, I'm not even sure I know God. I'm not sure I'm walking with God. I don't know that I have a, a past to draw from because I, I'm not with the Lord. Then, then brother or sister, let me remind you, God has showed up in Jesus Christ to save your soul. And today can be the day 
where His light breaks forth. And you are saved for all eternity. And the future hope is secure for you as you come to Jesus. I pray this morning you'll leave encouraged knowing that God is our salvation. And we can say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Father, bless us now as we respond to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning? You come if the Lord leads.